0: Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go.
1: And we're off for another exciting episode. Of the Two Tongues Podcast Welcome back Welcome back, you guys Alright, so It's another solo episode today Solo Wednesday Just an intimate intimate afternoon With you and me You guys Um, Today I wanted to talk about a podcast So This one's a podcast about a podcast, I suppose Uh, But not exactly So I told um, Kyle the other day when we were talking that that my preferences on um, the episodes of the Joe Rogan Experience that have been the most interesting to me uh, over the last year or two mostly are the really heady ones. The the academics mostly the doctors. Like if he's got he's got uh, Doctor Rhonda Patrick on talking about you know um, nutrition or you know longevity or you know whatever the interesting new research is. On medicine, uh, or if he has a physicist on, and he has a lot of those guys, including the Weinstein brothers. And um, when I was talking about it with Kyle, I'm like, look, these days I haven't really been listening to every episode, which, you know, for a long time I was. It um, has something to do with uh, podcasts going crazy. There's so many out there now, so many new ones of all different varieties. So, you know, it used to be Joe Rogan's podcast was the best one there was. And I don't know if that's still true, but um, there's just a lot more choices. So rather than listening to every episode of Joe, um, I've been sort of cherry picking them. And um, I know I'm missing stuff because I'm doing that. And I told my brother uh, this is exactly the opposite. I'm like, hey, man, don't skip episodes. Listen to them all. You're going to miss stuff that you didn't realize you were going to like. And that happened to me many, many times. So, shame on me for not taking that advice, but look, I'm a busy man. I got things to do. So, I'm cherry-picking these episodes and um, listening to the ones where mostly where he has academics on and uh, decided rather than just cherry-picking these episodes of JRE, I could just go listen to some of these podcasts that are basically like that episode after episode, and the Brett Weinstein Dark Horse podcast is one of those, so I've been listening to it recently, and um brett weinstein is a biologist he's been talking a lot about covid and uh, the lab league theory and interesting stuff like that he's been having a lot of interesting people on um, but i didn't realize that one of the people he had on recently was my man jordan b peterson so when i saw that i was like okay i'm gonna go ahead and listen to that one so i cherry picked that one um uh, as well. And um, it's interesting listening to Jordan on a podcast that's not his. Or if you go on YouTube and you just type in like Jordan Peterson interview and you can listen to him doing an interview that's not like the ones you hear on his podcast. It's interesting because it's a whole different dynamic. And, you know, I really like Jordan's uh, thoughts, you know, most of them. And so getting him, um, you know, getting him in front of somebody who, who has very different opinions, um, especially educated people. It's a different kind of conversation. It's not like Jordan talking to his students because that's kind of what he's practiced doing for the last 30 years. You know, the academic that has all the information talking to the people who don't have any of that information. So it's a certain type of conversation. Now, it's good. I like it because that's an easy way for me to learn like I'm sitting in a college lecture. That's how it's designed, so that I can sit there and learn from the expert. But when you get someone like Jordan Peterson sitting down with Sam Harris, which he did, or sitting down with with Brett Weinstein, which is the episode that we're going to talk about today, it's a very different kind of conversation. It, the kind of conversation where, where Jordan will get pushback um, on his ideas from other academics that have really well thought out arguments just like Jordan. So to see somebody disagree with him on that really high level is interesting, to see how he responds, to see kind of what he learns, um, and that's something that Jordan talks about a bunch. I say he likes to lecture um, right on the border of chaos and order, like he says. He, he likes to argue um, right at the edge of his understanding, and when he's teaching, it, it's for him, it's a way of sort of thinking out loud, which I completely understand, because when you, when you have to say, when you have to articulate ideas, they sink in in a way that they just don't if you hear them. Um, if you turn around and explain them to somebody else, suddenly you start to understand it in a way that you hadn't before, or even you ask yourself questions. Like questions will dawn on you that that wouldn't have, and I think it boils down to being skeptical, and being skeptical is is really important and really good. And uh, a lot of times people in academia talk like they're experts, like it's a settled, you know, the science is settled, let's, let's say. And um, there's not a lot of skepticism, right? You can't, it's hard to push back against a PhD academic who's an expert in their field, um, who thinks they have everything figured out. Try to be skeptical with that person. See how well, that, how, how well that's going to go. You know, people get defensive, right? Um, people who believe they're right get defensive when somebody questions them. And it's one of the saddest realities of fucking what it's like to be a human being. It's very, very sad that people's first instinct is to be defensive, um, that their first instinct is to um, rationalize around people's counter arguments. You know, it's like uh, somebody calls you on your shit rather than admitting you're wrong, which is what you fucking should do. Instead, people figure out slimy ways of, of, you know, wiggling around the argument. Oh, no, I didn't mean that. I meant this, that kind of stuff. So it's interesting, uh, again, interesting to have Jordan sitting down with somebody who really can talk on the same level as him. um, And they have expertise in different areas, you know, like Weinstein's a biologist. Jordan's a psychologist. uh, But they both respect each other. And that's Absolutely critical You can see If you go back And listen to Jordan Peterson Talking to Sam Harris That I'm not entirely sure There was mutual respect At least the first time around um, At least enough On both sides When they sit When Jordan sits down And talks to Brett Weinstein Though It definitely seems like There's respect on both sides If you listen to it um, By the way The podcast is just called uh, Jordan Peterson is back uh, The The name of the podcast Is the Dark Horse Podcast uh, With Brett Weinstein And his wife Heather I believe and uh, it's just interesting. It's really interesting because there are moments where we- Weinstein pushes back against Jordan, and rather than getting defensive, he's he opens himself up to the idea. And this is exactly what you should do. It's if somebody presents to you information thats um, that doesn't fit into your model, it doesn't fit into your whatever it is that you're Goddamn certain about. If somebody provides you information like that, what you should do is open up your ideas in a way that you can synthesize the new information and bring it together with your, with your existing thoughts and arguments. You have to ad- adopt or adapt that new information um, if, it's, if it's legitimate. You have to. If you don't, um, you know, you, you, you fall down this path of error that Jordan talks about and I've talked about many times that's something like this. Uh, if you have a model of the world that you've developed in your mind and, and it's not working, um, the arrogant person thinks something's wrong with the world. You know, I'm trying, doing this. It's not working. It's always worked before. Why is it not working now? The world is fucked somehow. Without ever stopping to think that maybe it's those it's the model that you think is correct that needs to be adjusted. So you incorporate that new information, you change the model, and you carry on living your life. The people who don't, the people who don't live in a model of the world that isn't right, it's false somehow. It leads them down the path of error, and everything that they build on, this kind of shaky foundation, is going to lead them into error, you know, deeper and deeper into error, so... It's like living a lie. It's like creating this this lie of a world that you live in. It's it, it's a, a terrible hell. And we talked about people like that on this podcast before. When I talk about the, you know, the habitual liars, the, the 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 people that lie to everyone and lie to themselves, and it's absolutely ridiculous. And they live in this personal hell of their own making. And this is not what happens when Jordan and Brett get together. So I'm going to go through this with you um, in terms of. Uh, the quotes and ideas that came up during the conversation that I thought were interesting. Um, I won't really be able to kind of summarize the whole thing because it was a very natural conversation. It was going here and there. It, you know, it's not like there was a thread um, that uh, you can kind of track from beginning to end and talk about everything. So I'm just going to talk about the things that I thought were interesting and kind of where this led me to is, is thinking about instincts because that's such a, Confusing and interesting idea, an instinct we've talked about this before, and Brett and Jordan talk about this on the podcast uh that we're going to talk about today I'm just going to introduce the idea here uh in a way that I've done before, but' I'll, I'll tee it up here so when you think about an instinct, what do you what comes to mind? What do you think of now, some people think of human beings, some people think of animals. You know, I don't know what comes to mind when you think about an instinct. Um, I just googled it. You know, like what what's the um, dictionary definition of an instinct? And the internet the internet says things like, um, uh, what did they say? I wrote it down someplace. Like there are patterns of um, patterns of behavior that are fixed. And another definition was that they're inborn impulses to act in a certain way, like a stimulus response sort of way. So you you, um, encounter a certain thing or a certain situation, and you react in a certain way, even though nobody ever taught you how to do it, you just know how to do it. It's just something that you were born knowing how to do. It's almost not something that's exactly in your control either, because it's not something that you do on purpose exactly. It's something that just kind of comes out of you against your will when you have a certain stimulus. Another definition is is an innate fixed pattern of behavior. And the example they give is that birds have an instinct to build nests, right? Nobody has to teach a bird how to build a nest. They can just do it. Now, when philosophers talk about this, they use the word a priori, which I've talked about before. I hate using jargon. But it's important. Um, a priori just means before experience. So it's a word that people will use when they talk about instincts or when they talk about certain types of knowledge that that we seem to have even though nobody has taught it to us. And it's very fucking weird. It's a mysterious thing. Um, there isn't exactly a scientific explanation for it. And there's a lot of ways in which talking about instincts to me sounds like you know, like we're talking about ESP or something, extrasensory perception, and we kind of are. That's the thing. What what would an instinct be, if not some type of perception that you that you wouldn't call one of your five senses? It's something else, and it's linked, I think, to this idea that I talk about a lot: um, the idea of intuition. Right? That's another hippy dippy word, intuition. When we talk about that, it's like, "Oh, I have a feeling about something or someone I have a you know um, it's like a way of knowing without knowing, and you can't explain it and so that's kind of like kind of like what we mean when we talk about when we talk about instincts, so these things are a priori before experience, and Kyle and I talked about this before with when we were talking about evolution it's like um Something that's something that's known before it, it's been experienced or before somebody's taught you, and you just know uh, it's very, very mysterious. Um, and from an evolutionary perspective, um, we know that we've got things we pass along in our DNA you know, things like the way we look and the, and the way that our bodies develop, and you know, some of the physical characteristics and psychological characteristics that are kind of programmed into the DNA. And when the DNA is doing its job, and Producing the creature that you and I are, all of those things come with it. You know, there's information in the DNA that we pass along. But is there knowledge in the DNA that we pass along? I mean, that's a very different question, right? Is there knowledge in the DNA that we pass along? So there's two different schools of thought on this, and we talked about it a little bit before, but there's the kind of traditional Darwinian um, explanation, and then there's this Lamarckian, which is kind of an older uh, evolutionary theory, and the um, Lamarckian people say that like an animal could pass along an acquired characteristic, so maybe that's knowledge, maybe that's something that they learned, Um, but the example that they will often use is like a giraffe, so they'll say... And this is what Jean-Baptiste Lamarck actually said, uh, you know, whenever he, whenever he was uh, pre-Darwin, but near near to that time. And he said, look, um, giraffes are always stretching their necks so that they can reach the leaves that, you know, are higher up in the trees. You know, the low-hanging fruit is easier. And once, that, once those leaves are gone, what do they need to do? They need to get up into the higher areas of the tree so they're stretching their necks. They're doing that every day um, for their entire lives their children are doing it every day for their entire lives, and their children, and their children, and so on, and so on, and so on. After enough time has passed, the Lamarckian view is that somehow the effort that these animals have gone through to stretch their necks um, has a evolutionary advantage, obviously. They're going to survive by being able to get these higher-up leaves, and somehow they're passing along the the extending of their neck that they've been practicing by stretching it and stretching it and stretching it somehow they they pass that along to their to their children and after a long enough time has gone by you've got these animals with very long necks and Darwin on the other on the other hand says you know that's complete bullshit um, that there are random mutations that are happening and if they happen to be successful like somebody happens to be born with a longer neck he's going to outbreed the ones that have shorter necks and so that's what's happening and for a long time, everyone agreed that the Darwinian explanation was actually the right one. There's absolutely no way that we could, we can think of that uh, an animal could pass along an acquired characteristic. That's the Lamarckian view. There's no way that one animal can pass along an acquired characteristic to another one. Um, so that would be the argument. Like like I could I could work out you know heavy hard my my whole life, and then when I have Children, somehow, I'm going to pass along this propensity to being buff to my kids. Something like that is, is you know, maybe a stereotypical argument. And for most of uh, modern history, we've said no. I, we don't think that's correct. I, I, we don't think so. Um, and it's weird because when you think about passing along knowledge that way versus passing along like the propensity to be buff, it's kind of a different. It seems to be a different question. But in either case, um, science has said, nope, that, that's, that's probably not the case. But then all of a sudden recently, like in the last 20, 30 years, um, there's been a whole bunch of science that's come out um, that says other things that sound very Lamarckian, like it's possible um, to pass on something that's acquired. And this is called epigenetics. And it's something that's like cutting edge science. I'm not an expert, so I'm not going to be able to give you a whole lot of information on it. But there's a field of epigenetics that says now something like what Lamarck was saying way back then. And so what Darwin's saying about uh, you know random mutations getting passed along in the DNA, that's obviously true. We see that. We have evidence of that. The Lamarckian view that acquired characteristics might be also passed along, well, there might actually be something to that now, and we don't exactly know what. And so for human beings, there's a way in which we have... Um, the ability to pass along acquired information, aqua- knowledge and wisdom from our lived experience that we can pass along to one another, to our children and our grandchildren and, you know, whatever. How do we do that? It's called culture. It's called culture. We do that with our language, the language that we pass along to our to our children. Uh, we do that with, um, you know, uh, with our art, we do that. With um, our religion, we do that. With our philosophies, we do that in all sorts of ways. That we have, a, we have the ability of capturing important information that we learned, that we earned by living, and we can somehow package it up and give it to the next generation. And nowadays, it's—I mean—it's really unbelievable to the extent to which we can do that because we have—we have networks. We can do that. We can we can provide volumes and volumes of written material, books, and articles of all kinds, and now we can do that with videos very easily, with seemingly just no end to the amount of just free infinite storage that the internet's providing with platforms like YouTube and others, that we can just sort of saturate um, this this IT space, this kind of weird uh, ability we have to to contain and transmit information, and we do have this sort of epigenetic type thing that's happening with our culture. You know, and it may just be like in the old days, we pass along things like in our art, and our children, they'll sit there and they'll look at the great art that came out of the Renaissance or that came out of the Stone Age caves in France and Spain or something. And you're looking at that art and there's meaning and emotion and, and things that are there that we can feel that make us interested in that art. Even if we don't understand it, we know that there's knowledge, there's information embedded in it. And I think that's what makes art so, so compelling. So even that is, is an example of how we can pass along as human beings, how we can pass along information um, to, to other people. But animals don't exactly have that ability, right? Um, a bird can't pass along culture, let's say, to another to the next generation of birds, and somehow that contains what they need to know how to build a nest or know how to find food or something. Those things, those things are just known to them. So, so how they got that information is not exactly clear. I mean, we, we know that robins have been living the way robins live for a very, very long time. And as far back as human beings' knowledge goes, they've kind of been living the same way. And we know that they've existed for a very long time, even, you know, uh, going back into history, maybe even before uh, modern humans or maybe even before humans existed at all. There are robins out there living the way robins do and there's something about living that pattern of existence over and over and over and over again that allows the next generation of robins to crack open their shell and know exactly how to be a robin without being taught that is amazing and very very difficult to understand there is no scientific explanation that's satisfactory and nobody ever talks about it what in the sam hell are instincts what are they? All right, so when you think about animals, um, I don't know what kind of instincts come to mind. But knowing how to build a nest, like we said a minute ago, is definitely one of them. You've got all these different kind of birds, let's say, and these different kind of mammals. They all make nests, and they're all different, different kinds of nests. But, but when you look at a robin, when you look at a sparrow, when you look at a squirrel, all of their nests between the species are basically the same or very similar. They know a squirrel knows how to do a squirrel nest and a robin knows how to do a robin nest. Very, very strange. And there are things to do with procreation. You know, obviously nature requires that we have sex and, you know, propagate the species. If not, all of this stops. So that's priority one, right? Everybody has an instinct to have children. So all these like weird courtship displays that you see, you know, you could just imagine, you know, human teenagers, um, you know, at a party or at a dance or something. You, you know what I mean? There's courtship behavior you see in humans the same way you see it in peacocks or in, you know, howler monkeys or, you know, anything else. There's displays and vocalizations and things that they do to stand out, to attract the female so that they can have sex and pass along their genes. Then there's like Then there's instincts for fighting and play and aggression. Nobody has to teach a silverback chimp to protect his territory or to protect his females. Nobody has to tell him that he just knows it just erupts out of him when, when it's when the stimulus is there, when somebody is threatening right to be, to to be the alpha over him. It just comes out of him. The aggression, the instinct to defend just is there somehow. Um, I don't know how many men are listening here. I'm a man. I can say, uh, you know, having been in testosterone-riddled uh, times of my life, I completely understand the idea of being overcome by rage and aggression and having those things come out of you seemingly against your will. It's like your body knows how to respond to that situation and will respond. Even if your mind can't quite, hasn't, hasn't quite been able to evaluate the situation and might be wanting to be more cautious, your body just acts anyway. It's very strange, very strange. Um, there's also things like like hibernating, like migrating, you know, like herds of animals migrating for food, or um, bears hibernating for the winter, something like that. Can you imagine just getting real fucking sleepy one day? After you've been, for some reason, un- you know, unbeknownst to you, you've been stockpiling a lot of extra food and you can't quite understand why you're doing it, but you have been doing it for about the last three months and all of a sudden you get very sleepy and you just want to go and sleep for, for a couple of, couple of months. You're just going to go in there and, you know, you've never done it before. You're a first-year bear. Never done that before. You've slept. You've slept for a night. You wake up, you do your thing, you sleep again. Never have you hibernated before. And somehow you just know to do it and when to do it It's amazing. Uh, How about this? How about this? In Australia, marsupials, when they're born, they crawl into their mother's pouch. They know to do that because that's where they're going to get protection. That's where they're going to get fed. That's where they're going to get their warmth. They know when they're born to immediately crawl into this pouch. They've never seen the pouch before. (laughs) They have no idea what the fuck a pouch is. They're brand new marsupials and they know to do that. No one's ever taught them. They just do it. How about sea turtles hatching from the freaking beach? All those eggs crack open. All the predators are going around trying to eat these little turtles. What are they doing? They're hatching out of their shells. Their very first moment of life, they're crawling immediately to the ocean. They don't know what the ocean is. They've never seen it before. They have no idea. They're just alive, and they don't even know what they are. And they're headed to the ocean because that's where their safety is. That's where the food is. Nobody's taught them that. They just do it. And what's the stimulus that's causing something like that? It's like they come out of that egg and they experience the world for the first time. And their instinct to that is to head to the ocean. That's their response. Like someone tickles my foot and I laugh. Right? That's my response. This, this turtle's response to opening its eyes to the world is to head to the ocean without having any idea why. Um, and there's all kinds of things. I mean, there's a bird. I can't remember the name of the bird, but there's a bird that, um, lays its eggs in other birds' nests and the eggs look just like the other birds. So they go in and they kick the, the birds, uh, eggs out of the nest. They put their own in there and they fly away and they never have to take care of their eggs because these other dumb birds will just take care of the, their, their offspring for them. Um, how did they learn that? And they, and these, these birds do that behavior instinctively. Like you have to imagine something that sophisticated it must have had taken time to develop. It must have. And so how do those birds pass along that that process to the to their children? How do they do that? Tweet tweet fucking tweet? I don't think so. It's amazing. Uh we talked about some of these before, but there's um uh there was a uh documentary I was watching one time about um about these chickens. I believe they were baby chickens. And they were saying that as an experiment, they were taking these cutout, these wooden cutouts of different bird shapes, and they were pulling them along this pulley. So they were like basically 20 feet above the chicken coop with these newly hatched chicks. And they could just sort of pull this wooden uh, cutout of a hawk or of a duck or of a goose, and they would pull it over the coop so that its shadow would be on the... uh, you know, on the ground, and the chicks would see the shadow, and they would respond, and what happened was, anytime a predatory bird, like a a hawk or an eagle, would be, um, would be uh, pulled across the coop, the shadow of the predatory bird would cause these chicks to go crazy, they would run for cover, they would, they were terrified, but you could do a goose or a duck or something that's not predatory, and they would see those shadows, and wouldn't respond at all, they wouldn't respond at all. This is a baby chick who's never seen a shadow before, yet alone a hawk. But the shape of that shadow is like a pattern that imprints right on that on that chick's, you know, nervous system, and it knows without ever being taught that pattern means hide. How does that get passed along to a baby chick? I would like to know. How about this? Um, Jordan Peterson talks about this a bunch with, with his research. Um, the smell of a cat is something that will scare a rat to absolute death. Even a laboratory rat who's never seen a cat before, ever, who's never been exposed to a cat. Even a laboratory rat who, whose parents and grandparents never been exposed to a cat, because they've all been living in a lab this whole time. You give a whiff of cat urine or cat odor to, to those rats, and Jordan says they scream. They, they scream in this high-pitched way you can't hear, but you, you can record it. They scream for what would be the equivalent of days for a human being, just nonstop screaming in terror because of the smell of cat that they've never seen and never experienced before, ever. So they would be smelling a smell, they would have no way of knowing what it means, but they know to be afraid of it. How, I ask you, does that baby rat know? How? So these are instincts, guys. These are the kind of things I'm talking about. Ways of knowing without knowing, or ways of being able to act without being in control exactly. Um, Let me talk about human instincts, because some of these have come up before and some haven't, but some things that come to my mind this is one Jordan Peterson has brought up before he talks about in mythology he talks about things like griffins and dragons and things like that these mythological characters that don't exist but when you look at them you can see how they're these objects of fear in the mythological stories and when you look at kind of what they're composed of you can see that they're like a combination of all the of all the natural predators that human beings have had to deal with in our existence And that's very fucking strange. Imagine a child trying to come up with an image of something terrible that represents whatever it is they're scared of. A child who's got very little experience in the world. And they draw you this picture of a monster. And it's got got the head of a snake. And it's got the body of a lion. And it's got, you know, claws. And it breathes fire. And it, you know, all of these giant wings. And it can fly. it It can just... It can just emerge from, from the sky, you know, like a terrifying creature, this dragon that we've painted up. And what is it? It's a combination of all of the things that would have killed human beings uh, throughout our evolutionary history. Poisonous snakes, poisonous spiders, predatory birds, predatory cats like lions and jaguars and things like that. These are the things that eat um, monkeys and apes in the wild. They're things that human beings would have been running from for for most of our existence. And somehow, in this mythological way, we've come up with these ideas that represent a hodgepodge of all of our fears. And what's interesting is you don't have to teach a a human child to be afraid of spiders or snakes or or large cats. Those are things that we're naturally afraid of. Uh, You guys have probably all seen those YouTube videos where they put like a like a cucumber down in front of a cat and the cat leaps up in the air. Cats also are preyed on by poisonous snakes and and constrictors in the wild. So they can't see something that even looks like a snake without panicking and jumping 10 feet in the air. And that's what happens to human beings. Expose a human being to to a snake. You know, It's something that almost all of us are going to be reluctant about. We're going to have natural fear about. And uh, that's not exactly taught to us. There's also other things um, like this notion of self-preservation. Like the idea that if you're standing up on a high place and you're afraid of heights, let's say, you get that feeling, um, that feeling that's telling you get the fuck down from there. You're not sure where that feeling is coming from. It's coming from yourself deep down somewhere where yourself is telling you, hey, this is dangerous. You might want to knock it the fuck off. Um, so, so heights, you know, a fear of of death. That that's something that comes from seemingly nowhere. You know, imagine the first time you, the first time you considered that you might die and were afraid of it. How old were you? You know, most of us probably weren't kids. You know, most of us probably weren't teenagers. When you have somebody die in your family, at least in the modern age. Oftentimes it's a grandparent or something, and you're maybe you're a teenager, maybe you're a little older than that. And the first time you have to experience death like that, you're, you know, you're pretty pretty developed by then. Um, but uh, but this idea of um, self preservation is still there even even well. You know, and, and, and when you're much younger, i always what I mean to say before you've had an experience that's meaningful of death, you still are worried about things like heights. You want to preserve your life. Same reason you, you are afraid of a snake because you want to preserve your life. You don't exactly know why and you don't exactly know that that's what you're doing. It's like, but to be scared is a instinct that's there to help you preserve your life. Why? So you can live long enough to have kids and spread your genes, right? That's what the nature wants you to do. And there are, there are things that go along with that, like the, the, the urge to procreate, you know. Um, when we are going through pu- puberty and we have this transitional pl- time in our life and we have all, all of a sudden these new chemicals floating around in our brain that we're not accustomed to, that we respond to that stimulus as well. We respond to that by exploring our sexuality, by taking risks, by uh you know putting ourselves out there emotionally and socially in ways that we never had to do before. We just know how to do it. Our body's just responding to the estrogen or the testosterone or whatever it is, and we just do it. Nobody has to teach you exactly. Um, things like psychological things like denial, revenge, loyalty, and greed those also come up um, in the perspective of instincts, you know, like, uh, if there's a painful memory or something that I'm trying to avoid because it's interfering with my life, I can't deal with it for some one reason or another. That's denial, baby. That'll get you through. That's something we just figure out how to do. We just bury it down psychologically. We deny, 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 and keep doing what we have to do. We all do that. Did someone teach you how to do it? Nope. Nope. Just know, you just know. How about that feeling that somebody's wronged you and you have to get revenge? Where does that, that come from? Does anybody have to teach that to you? No. You just feel slighted. And this, and this anger and this desire is there, just there. Nobody's had to teach it to you, it's just there. Or this idea of reciprocity, you know, like tit for tat. Somebody hurts you, you hurt them back, an eye for an eye. Someone treats you well, you treat them well. There's this idea of loyalty. Uh, that also doesn't seem to be taught. It just seems to be uh, apparent. What about things like sleeping? No one has to teach you how how to sleep. No, no. That's the easiest thing in the world. But do you know how to sleep? Is it something that when you lay down and close your eyes, even when you're Trying to sleep, even when you're having insomnia and you're tossing and turning, and you're willing yourself to fall asleep. Do you have any control over that? No, it just happens. It's something that you your body does, and you don't have any control over it. It's an instinct. And if and if sleeping is an instinct, then dreaming is an instinct. It's not something you learn, it's not something you know how to do, it's something that's unconscious, below the surface, that's happening to you. It's an instinct. We talk about this with animals as well as human beings, but what about, what about the way your mouth waters uh, when you see like a fresh baked pie or a, or a steak that's just sizzling or something like that? What about that? That's an instinct too, it's a response, you don't have any control over that think about an infant, like a human baby. We've talked about this before. Like if you put a human baby, a newborn baby in a pool, or you have a water birth, let's say women will do that, that the baby will, will nose instinctively to roll over onto its, onto its back so that it's face up and float. A newborn baby, just born, never, never been in water before, never experienced this before. Although you could argue in the womb, it's similar. It, a baby simply knows how to do that how to survive it's also got things like suckling reflexes rooting reflexes something called the babinski reflex which is if you ever put your finger down underneath the toes of a baby a baby will pull its toes down and kind of grab your finger it's like a it's like a primate instinct of of grabbing a hold of a branch or something it's just natural the instinct and all you have to do is put your put the stimulus there put your finger there baby will grab a hold of your of your finger with its toes What about crying when the baby needs something? Who taught the baby how to cry? It just does it. It just knows. That's an instinct, you guys. It's amazing. And then you could say the same thing about fighting, playing, or learning. You know, those are things that animals do and humans do, and nobody has to teach us to do it. And fighting and playing and learning kind of are the same thing. There's not really much of a difference there. If you're fighting or if you're playing, you're learning. You're learning about the rules of gravity. You're learning about pain. You're learning about the world. You're, you're learning about your limitations. You know, you're learning about uh, anger and pain and uh, all that stuff that happens when you're playing or fighting. Is, is all, it's all learning, really. And the fact that you can do that, you can program your, your brain by, by, by practicing. Nobody has to teach you that either. We just do it. Just do it. So it's interesting, you guys. Um, it's interesting for lots of reasons. It's interesting for the same reason that I always ask on this podcast. Where do, your, where do your dreams come from? Where do your interests come from? Where do your disgusts come from? It's very difficult to pin that down. It's very difficult Try to answer that question. If, you're, if you find yourself interested in the topic, how exactly did that come about? Think about a time that happened to you. Like For me, it's this, it's this deep interest in God, the idea of God and what that means. It's always been there for me since I was a kid. I don't have any idea where that came from. I have no idea. It, it, that was something that was in me before I ever went to Sunday school, before I knew what church was, before I knew what God was. Those are the kind of questions that I was always asking. Those were the kind of thoughts that I that I had when I was introduced to to the idea of God. That was I couldn't I couldn't stop thinking about it. I couldn't stop exploring it, um, and I'm still doing that today. I'm still doing that. Where'd that come from? You know, my parents aren't particularly religious. They're not preachers or nothing. You know, we, we went to Sunday school, obviously, growing up, but we didn't go to church regularly when I was in middle school or high school or as an adult. You know, it, it's not like I was steeped in it. So where did this come from? Where do your interests come from? you have any idea? And we talk about this in all sorts of ways. You know, we talk about this like maybe those things come from nature. Maybe they come from the unconscious. Maybe they come from God. It's not clear to me that those three words mean different things, so you know there's that um, one more one more thing here before we get into the actual podcast is we when we talk about instincts, when we talk about intuitions because I think those words also sort of mean something similar it's it, you can think about intuition like an instinct. So maybe intuition is another one of these instincts, and and when I say things like that, again, I know it's hippy dippy, and and you might turn your nose up to this, but and and maybe you're maybe you're right, but we all have experiences like this where we think we know something before we know, like hey, don't I, I shouldn't walk down that alley, something bad will happen to me, or something like that. You know what I mean? Um, or I meet a stranger and I'm like something's not quite right about that person. Like they didn't say anything wrong, but they looked at me and the look in their eyes was a little bit something there I detected that I don't quite I don't quite trust. We've all had that experience too. What is that? It's an intuition of some kind. It's like this idea of instincts, like your body is responding to something that it knows that you don't quite know. And that's interesting. Every time that happens that's interesting when your body knows or when you know something that you don't understand and you know it could there could easily be some sort of explanation for that maybe you pick up on some kind of you know s- smell of pheromones or something from this person who's you know um <laughs> got ill will towards you and it's seeping out of their pores somehow and you don't exactly recognize what it is you're smelling but your body knows maybe maybe something like that maybe it's body language maybe it's these subtle things that you pick up on but they don't exactly register consciously it's all subconscious you know you pick up on all these little subtle cues and you know hey this guy's this guy's dangerous maybe it's that but even if that's the case the idea that you that you know all of those things somehow in your body somehow subconsciously but that your but that your conscious self the thing that you think of as you the thing that's talking and the thing that's listening right now that part of you doesn't know what your body knows what the fuck does that mean you get this feeling like a message like an amber alert from your from your soul saying this guy's dangerous that's an intuition and you have no like conscious awareness of why but that message still comes through. What is that? And I want and i want to mention, if you've ever had that feeling, which I know you have, I'm set, setting you up to, <laughs> by, by bringing this up, where your hair on your back or your shoulders, your arms or whatever, I'm a hairy guy, stands on end. You have one of those moments. And maybe it's, you feel like somebody's watching you and you can't see anybody watching you, but you feel it somehow. Or you know, maybe it's just like an alert, maybe it's just some sort of feeling of danger or something that that happens and the hair stands up on your body, that that feeling is something that we usually talk about when we talk about intuition. I had a feeling, I had a bad feeling, something like that. That physiological phenomenon where your hair stands up, that's the same thing that's happening to you and I, that's the same thing that happens to a cat. When it bumps into a dog on the street, you all know what I mean. The cat pushes down its paws, it arches up its back, all of the hair on its back from its neck to its tail stands up on end and it hisses at the dog or, or freezes in fear. That thing that's happening to the cat is exactly what happens to you and I when we have that type of intuition. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's the same physiological phenomenon. So what's happening to the cat? And Jordan Peterson's talked about this. He says the cat is, is has an experience of awe. That's the kind of thing that you and I um are experiencing when we have that feeling. For the cat, the feeling of awe is all is being in awe of the predator, being in awe of something greater than it, that where it understands that its life is, is in the hands of this greater entity. And you and I might see that happen if we walk up to a great cathedral in Europe and we walk through the doors and we look up at the spires that twirl up into the heavens, you know, 2 300 feet up into the air, and all of the intricately carved columns and the stained glass and the echoing and the beauty of that of that holy place, and we might feel in awe and the hair might stand up on our arms. Same thing might happen at the base of a mountain, looking up at the, at the majestic snowy peak of the mountain or whatever it is. There are moments that we, when we feel awe, and maybe it's, maybe it's awe of a predator, the same way the cat's f- feeling when it encounters the dog. Maybe that's the feeling that you're getting when, you, when you've met that stranger and there's something not quite right about it. And some part of your body's telling you there's danger there. That intuition, again, may be exactly what's happening When the cat encounters the dog. It's amazing. It's amazing. All right, so we talked a lot about animals. We talked a lot about humans. We talked a lot about instincts and intuition. And I'm going to have to backtrack a teensy bit. um, Before we can circle back to instinct. So let's get into this. Let's get into this podcast. Alright, the podcast is called Jordan Peterson is Back. The Dark Horse Podcast. So... They talk a lot about consciousness in this podcast, and as you probably can tell, that excites me. I absolutely love the idea of consciousness. It's fascinating to me. It's something that's tied, for me, it's tied up in the idea of God and the idea of being, uh, understanding reality the way that we do. It's all tied together for me, so it's always interesting when people talk about it for lots of reasons, because I think consciousness and God are basically the same, the same concept, uh, and also because scientifically we know very very little about how it works, so so you know, scientists of all sorts, it actually doesn't matter what their discipline, cannot tell you why we're conscious. No one can tell you that science has not quite figured it out. Why are we conscious? How are we conscious? How is our consciousness different than other creatures? We, we can speculate, we have experiments, um, but we know very, very little. Um, the scientific idea that's basically accepted right now, even though it's not proven, is that consciousness is an emergent property. So that you've got something like a network, and that network is like the neurons in your brain, and you've got this electrical impulses going through it, and somehow because of the complexity of all of this going on in your brain... Consciousness emerges as a kind of a side effect of all of this activity. Now that seems kind of like a lame explanation, but it's not as lame as you might think because because there's all sorts of mysteries that have to do with networks that we don't that we don't understand. And if you can think of something like the internet, which is a network that we created and how it was used in the beginning, um, you know, which was which was very simple. It was just to to store and mutually share information between, I think they were colleges originally, and uh, now look at all the things we can do with the internet. All of these things that emerged from the potential of the network, the internet, all of that stuff, it's kind of, it's kind of miraculous. I mean, obviously we were involved with building it, but the things that emerged once that once the infrastructure was there, once the network was there. All of the things that emerged from it, we couldn't really have predicted. And you can see what the internet has become, and, and it continues to become. We, we kind of have no idea where it's going or what the, the potential is. We have no idea. It just continues. So there's a lot of mystery to do with that. And uh, you know, maybe there's something there. Um, but when we talk about uh, when we talk about consciousness, um. And like like I do, Jordan Peterson is going to have a difficult time uh, talking about consciousness without talking about God. And and um, let me just let me just begin here. So there's a quote in the podcast where Weinstein and Jordan are talking about animals, and Jordan says, "Animals at their worst are predatory in a brutal manner, but human beings go way past that in their capacity for destruction." So they were talking about basically malevolence and um, and talking about the difference between you know human consciousness and animal consciousness. It's like how bad can an animal be? How how evil can an animal be? And he's saying when we're talking about animals, the worst they can be is brutally predatory because there's no. Because there's no capacity beyond that. And he says human beings, on the other hand, have capacity way, way beyond killing something so that you can eat. Like that's the, that's the nastiest thing an animal can do, is to have to kill another thing so that it can eat and survive. Now human beings, on the other hand, um, we, have a whole, we have a whole different situation we're dealing with. He says, um, well, let's see here. This idea comes up that human beings are different from animals because we're self-conscious. And this is something that I've talked about before. It's like it's very clear that animals are conscious. Um, It's also, you know, maybe as clear that plants are conscious to some degree or other. Um, You know, microorganisms are conscious, uh, bacteria, you know, things like that. Viruses, maybe, maybe not. It's hard to say. Um, So there's definitely an argument there that there's consciousness to be found beyond human beings, but that ours is something different, sort of seems to be because we can do all these things that animals can't do um, and the distinction that I make is to say that human beings are self conscious and animals are just they're just conscious so you can think of an animal as like as like something that it's like an automaton it's like a machine that goes around and simply responds to its instincts if there's food there if it and it's hungry it will eat. Um, If it's, you know, mating and somebody tries to encroach on its territory, it gets aggressive and fights off the invaders. Um, It has to have a stimulus in order to respond. So it acts in the world, but only in this sort of programmed way. You would still say that an animal... Has a consciousness behind its eyes that a dog looks out and sees the world. That a dog, you know, uh, you pet a dog and it licks you and it feels those things and it and it learns in certain ways. And you know, you can definitely see it's very difficult to deny that something like a dog has that level of agency. There is something behind the eyes of the dog that's looking out. That's consciousness, right? And human beings are something a little different. And that seems to have something to do with why it's possible for us to be so goddamn evil. You know, well beyond what an animal can do. And this is something Jordan talks about when he describes um, the story of um, Adam and Eve in the garden. Where he, he basically says he thought for a decade about that story, trying to understand what the hell that meant. You know Adam and Eve and the and the uh, in the tree of uh, the knowledge of good and evil and all and getting kicked out of Eden and all that sort of thing, and what he what he eventually decided that meant after thinking about it for a very long time was this: if what the story of the Garden of Eden represents is human beings again eating the apple or the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, that once they've done that they become Conscious creatures, just like all the other animals in the garden, but now they know good from evil. And Jordan says, what that means is that the animal has become self-conscious. So how do we get there? Well, pretty easy. It goes like this. If I know what hurts me, then I know how to hurt you. Now, would you say that goes beyond the animal's capacity for evil, the predatory brutal predatory instinct, the dog with a with a squirrel in its mouth shaking it violently from left to right while blood and saliva sprays all over the backyard, you know, that kind of brutality and it, the dog just smiles, just has a smile on its face while it's chewing on this this you know, this this helpless creature. That that's the worst they can do. How about us? about deception, about infidelity, how about, um, you know, unfaithfulness, you know, lying, lying, you know, manipulating, all the things that human beings do, way worse. And so if I'm a creature, like an animal, let's say, who becomes self-conscious, and now I know about my experience. I can reflect on my own experience. I can look at myself like a third person. That's what it means to be self-conscious. I can see myself like I'm seeing a, a, a third person. I can evaluate how I am, why I'm doing what I'm doing, that kind of thing. And if I know what hurts me, and I know what stings me, and I know what I want, then I know what stings you, and what you want, and how to hurt you, because I know how I'm hurt. And so you... Jordan says that evil gets turned into an art at that point. And human beings can do with it all of the things that we do with with anything artistic. We can make it we can make it all kinds of all kinds of bad. And it has something to do with again, mythologically looking at the story of of the garden of Eden and understanding that when human when human beings ate the ate the fruit um, and and had the knowledge of good and evil that what they were really doing was going from something like an animal that was conscious in paradise in the garden to being something self-conscious, something more like what God is. Now, I would argue that this self-consciousness idea, that this is the thing that's unique to human beings. It's the thing that the Bible says when it says that human beings were made in the image of God. That, I think, is what is what the Bible is getting at, self-consciousness. I have reasons for believing that, but that's what I believe. All right, so I want to read to you, um, let's see here, where, where do I go? Um, how about this? I'm going to read you a passage from a book by Philip Goff. He's, he's one of these physicists that I've talked about before that um, has an idea. Well, he, he's an adherent to an idea called panpsychism. Panpsychism is a type of physics that believes consciousness is the fundamental constituent element of reality. So, where where most physicists say, "Hey, you've got mass, you've got matter, rather you've got energy, you've got these you've got these elementary particles, and you've got these uh, particles that make up those elementary particles." Uh, there are things like gluons and um you know the the bosons and things like that and uh that's it those those are the building blocks of everything um the panpsychists say yeah you know i can go with you there but where did the bosons come from <laughs> and where did the you know where did, where did where did all these all these constituent subatomic particles come from um maybe it goes deeper than that and maybe where that deeper goes is to something a little bit less a little bit less material, something like consciousness, that consciousness is at the base of material reality. And as you can probably imagine, I love that idea. I'm a super big fan. I read Philip Goff's uh, book um, called Panpsychism, which was like a layman's version of this book that I've been reading called Consciousness and Fundamental Reality, which is his more academic book. And in the beginning, he, he has a description of consciousness, and he talks about it like Uh, from the perspective of an animal and from the perspective of a human, and I think it does a good job of making the distinction. So I'm going to read this to you. Philip Goff says, A thing is conscious just in case there's something that it's like to be it, if it has an inner life of some kind. There's something that it's like for a rabbit to be cold or to be kicked or to have a knife stuck in it. There's nothing like there's nothing that it's like in contrast for a table to be cold or to be kicked or to have a knife stuck in it. There's nothing it's like from the inside as it were to be a table. We mark the difference by saying that the rabbit but not the table is conscious. So it's interesting he's describing consciousness like this he's saying if you're something that that has, how do I even put this? If you're something that it's like to be, it's hard, it's hard to put into words. He's saying, look, if, it's, if there's a way um, of being that a rabbit is, like there's something that it's like to be a rabbit, <laughs> something like that, right? So there's, no, there's not an experience of being a table, but there is an experience of being a rabbit. That's, that's the distinction he's making. And I, and I put this in a different way earlier. I said, look, look, when you consider a dog, and a dog's looking out at the world, you know that there's something who's, that's seeing behind those eyes. There's something there picking up that information. That's what makes the dog conscious in my mind, and the table not. Although Philip Goff will argue later in the book that even a table is conscious, and I, I actually agree in, in a certain way. Um, so that's the first distinction he's making. He's like, look, if there's if it's... If there's something that it's like to be you, if you have an inner experience, then you're conscious. If you don't, then you're not conscious. So that's the first distinction. Then he says, It is important to note that consciousness so defined, sometimes called phenomenal consciousness to distinguish it from other notions, is not something cognitively sophisticated such that we might be reluctant to ascribe it to non-human animals such as a sheep or hamsters. In this respect, the standard philosophical definition of consciousness differs from a common meaning of that word in science, in everyday life, where it is often used to mean something like an awareness of self, or even an ability to reason. In some, in some sense, a rabbit is aware of the world around it, but it is doubtful that it is able to think reflexively, uh, refl- reflectively excuse me, about itself as an occupant of the world. The lack of self-awareness does not bar the rabbit from enjoying a rich inner experience, Thus, the rabbit is conscious in the phenomenal sense. So again, there, there is a distinction between a, a rabbit's consciousness and a human being's consciousness, which he's, he's basically saying that the difference there um, has to do with um, an awareness of self, right? So it's not just to be aware. It's to be aware that you're aware. So that's the difference. A rabbit, a dog, they are aware. You and I, we're aware. But we're also aware that we're aware. So that's the difference. And it's subtle, but it's super important because it's the difference between the life that I live, the life that you live, and the life that a hamster lives. Or a fish in your, in your tank at home. It's a big, important difference. Okay. Um, there is a... Uh, another quote in the podcast where Jordan's talking about like chimp behavior. And he says, um, that chimps, they hunt these, these monkeys that in the wild, they're pretty big monkeys. Actually, they're, you know, um, half the size of a chimp, really maybe more. And these chimps eat them, they hunt them and they eat them. So you can just imagine these, these primates, uh, large chimp, chimpanzees going around killing these, these kind of pretty big monkeys and eating them. And Jordan says, the, the chimps, they eat the monkeys alive, right? And, and I don't know if you know this, but coyotes, coyotes would do that too. So Joe Rogan has talked about this many times, where you have like a deer that gets taken down by wolves in the woods, and the wolves will eat the animals alive, you know, before their injuries have killed them. Uh, he graphically often will say that they'll eat them asshole first. So just imagine, they're just getting into all the soft bits and the guts while the animal's still suffering and dying. Same thing's being talked about here with chimps these chimps will hunt these monkeys. When they get them, they'll, they'll basically rip their arms and legs off so they can't escape and they eat them before they're even dead. These monkeys were screaming bloody murder while they're being eaten alive by a chimpanzee. Imagine that for a second. And the idea here is that the chimpanzee is conscious, but it's not self-conscious, almost, almost certainly. And the reason is that the chimp is hearing the, the pain from the animal that it's eating. Can't, you can't avoid it screaming while you're right there eating it. And you can imagine a chimp has, seen, um, ha- has been in pain before, has seen other chimps be in pain, has seen animals scream, has eaten these monkeys before, and have seen them scream before. So you and I in that position would have empathy, right? We would hear the pain that the monkey is, is screaming, and we would sort of feel it because we're self-conscious because we know what's happening we can imagine it happening to us we can't even exactly help but to imagine it happening to us you know and so the to the chimpanzee they're eating that they're eating that monkey they're listening to the cries and they don't feel any empathy they don't they don't feel anything they just sit there stoically chomping away having their lunch so this is an example of the difference between consciousness and self-consciousness. The idea that a chimp can sit there and eat a monkey alive, you and I could not do that. We could, but not without some sort of remorse, right? Not without some sort of empathy. All right. Um, all right, so I think I want to go here next. So this is like kind of one of the first things that gets brought up, and it's kind of what inspired me to talk about this today at all. Jordan and Brett were talking about uh, human beings during wartime, and Jordan mentioned that that rape is way more common during wartime. Um, Mass rape, actually, it's and you can imagine, you know, what warfare is like and how this dehumanizing thing that goes on during war. It's actually one of those instincts that we talked about earlier, denial. You remember when I said revenge and denial were these instincts that we don't, we don't have to learn, that we just sort of know. In a situation like war, you know, you convince yourself that, uh, that, the, other, that the other side is guilty and uh, that, you're, that you're righteous. And if you have to kill them, there's this dehumanizing thing psychologically that we're doing to distance ourselves from this terrible act that we're doing, which is to kill lots of people intentionally. Um, and, and you you guys remember probably um, hearing about this in, from Vietnam, you know, like uh, the American soldiers um, looked at the uh, Vietnamese um, soldiers that they were fighting against as less than human. And they were sort of taught to think about them that way. They called them, you know, Kong and other, other things so that they could kind of put them in a group and write them off as if they weren't even human. And they looked different enough from the European soldiers that were over there that they, they were easily able to... Kind of build those psychological walls up, so they could they could kill those people and not and not kind of destroy them themselves psychologically you know, as a consequence. So war is a time where dehumanization is, it's almost necessary, you know, at least for self-conscious creatures like you and I. And so, if you're in a situation where you're at war, you know, it, it, you can imagine it would be easier to steal or to rape or to kill, especially to the group. Um, that, you're, that you've dehumanized so that you can justify this to yourself. So mass rape happening in war, you know, it doesn't really surprise me. But here's where my mind is going. If human beings who wouldn't ordinarily rape, or at least wouldn't ordinarily rape at, the, at such large numbers, you put them in a situation like war, that's a different kind of stimulus, right? And then you would expect a different result. And we get one. We get lots and lots of rape happening. Um, so my question is something like this, and I don't want to ask it. I don't want to sound insensitive because we're talking about rape here, and so I don't. I'm not. I don't want to take that lightly. But we're talking about instincts. So I wanna I want to mention something else from from Joe Rogan's podcast. From time to time, he has hunters on there, and uh, Steve Rinella and some others, and they. They talked about uh, a book called Coyote America um, a few years ago where uh, this naturalist guy came in and he was talking about the history of coyotes. It, it, maybe it was Steve Renella. Anyway, he's talking about the history of coyotes. And he, one of the facts that he mentions about coyotes, which kind of blew my mind, two of them actually. First one is there's no difference between a coyote and a wolf. Just like there's no difference between a dog and a wolf. Uh, genetically, they're completely uniform. There's no, there's not enough difference to distinguish them as different species. They can mate together. So coyotes that they, they used to call them prairie wolves. They're not even, they're, they're literally wolves. And, uh, that was, I didn't know that. Another thing I didn't know, you know, when coyotes do their vocalizations, you know, you guys going to make me do it. Ow, 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 ooh, howling at the moon. You know what, the, you know what I'm talking about. Coyotes do that vocalization. If, you, if you're a hunter, you know what I mean. You've heard that before at sunset or at sunrise. Um, what I didn't know is, to, is why coyotes do that. They do those vocalizations like a roll call. So one coyote does the howl. The other coyotes in the area respond with a howl. And what's happening is the coyotes then know how many of them there are in that area. Here's, here's where it gets interesting. If a female coyote howls and she gets fewer vocalizations back than she she ordinarily does, she will have more pups that season than she would ordinarily. Let me say that again. If those coyotes are doing their roll call and they realize that there aren't as many coyotes out there as they thought there were, maybe they died, maybe they went off into another, another area, whatever it might be, The female coyotes will have more pups that season than they would otherwise. So this is kind of how they figured out that the vocalizations were kind of a roll call. So here I have to ask, do you think the coyotes know that they're doing a roll call? Or do you think one coyote howls and they have an instinct to howl back? So I think it's probably something simple like that. They hear a coyote howl, they have an instinct to howl back. Do you think that the female is listening for the for the return howls and knows kind of in a conscious way like you and I knows that there are less coyotes like you and I know the sun is going to come up tomorrow? Do you think she knows that there are fewer coyotes or do you think her body knows like the coyote doesn't exactly understand that I would have to imagine. But just like I was talking about smelling the pheromones of the evil person that I just met and picking up on the on the body language cues and stuff, my body knows I have this instinct that there's a problem, even though I don't I don't exactly understand it. I have this feeling, but I don't quite know why I have this feeling. This is what I think is happening with the coyotes, right? They're less conscious than we are. They're not self conscious. They're just conscious. They're just going they're just going around acting out their instincts. So. Does the female coyote know the vocalizations means there are less coyotes? Probably not. Yet her body knows that is the case and that she needs to be having more pups to replace the population. Okay. I'll give you one more example really quickly before I return to the rape because I'm reluctant to do it. I've said this before. I want to tell you guys again. Bears. They ne- they build their dens to hibernate um, near moving water, like creeks, usually, or rivers. Um, the reason they do that is because in the winter, obviously everything freezes. When the snow melts, the, the water level in the creek or the river will rise. So what happens is the water will begin to trickle into the den, and when that happens, the bear wakes up and knows, spring is here, time to get up, time to eat some salmon, whatever the fuck bears do. Interestingly, interestingly, if The winter that's coming is going to be a bad winter in the late um, summer when the bears are getting ready to hibernate, uh, going into the fall and all that. The bears will build their their dens higher up the hillside, higher up away from the water than they would ordinarily. Let Let me tell you that again. If the winter that's coming in the future... If that winter is going to be worse, the bears will build their dens higher up because there's going to be more snow so that the water levels are going to rise um, more. They have to be able to wake up at the right time in the season so they know, somehow they know, before the winter has begun, that it's going to be a bad winter. Do you think the bear knows that at the level of the way you and I know the sun is going to rise tomorrow? Do you think the bear knows the winter is going to be bad? Absolutely not. Can you imagine? Absolutely not. And yet the bear knows to build its den higher up than it normally does. It's just got an instinct that that's what it should be doing and it does it. It's like the bear's body knows. It's like it's picking up on some subtle cues about the smell in the air and the temperature and the wind speed and the, you know, whatever. I don't know what, but it doesn't know what. That's the thing. That's what an instinct is. It it knows without knowing, for Christ's sake. All right, so just to go back for a second to the coyote example. You remember I was saying that the coyotes know to have more pups when there are fewer coyotes out in the area. So let me go back to this, this wartime example that Jordan Peterson raised. We, we see massive amounts of rape happening during wartime. We know that the war itself is doing things like providing opportunity and motive for rapers, first of all. It's dehumanizing these women, and it, there's a there's lack of accountability because there's, it's wartime, right? There's no authorities looking over your shoulder. Nobody's micromanaging you during wartime. It's every man for himself. It's chaos, So there's motive and there's opportunity. Here's my question. Just like the coyotes know to have more children when there's fewer coyotes in the wild, do you imagine that there might be something like an instinct to rape during wartime when we know many people are going to die? (laughs) It seems very, very strange and hard to say. And maybe it would be better to say something like, do you think there is a... Increased impulse or instinct to procreate—is there like increased uh, horniness? Is there, in, in, you know, how how women will describe this like biological clock? Like, does that does that speed up? Does a woman feel more inclined, let's say, to uh, to get pregnant? Um, and, I, and I don't want to say, you know, that 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 rape is somehow necessary because it's not. But you can imagine that with those with those circumstances in place that somebody who's got this heightened desire a heightened sex drive a heightened desire to procreate that there might might be more forced rape that 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 might happen as a consequence. So as terrible as that is, you know, going back to this idea that Jordan brought up in the beginning that animals are the worst they can be is predatory in a brutal manner and we can be way worse. That that maybe something like that's happening happening here. Um, We the coyotes in the same situation. They know that the the herd is being thinned, so biologically those those coyote women are are going to have more in their litters, and that you know human beings don't quite work that way. And so maybe our capacity for evil, that, that this idea of self-consciousness, is allowing these worse things to happen. And, and in the case of a human being, it's not just to have more kids, but it also goes along with rape, by forcing it. You know, that doesn't exactly exist in the animal kingdom. It's not, not the same way. So I wonder, does mass rape happening during war have something to do with an instinct, like the coyote's? to replace the people that we know are dying. It's like we know psychologically. We know in our body. We know we know subconsciously or unconsciously that people are dying, that they're dying in large numbers, that the situation is unstable, and that the, the species might be, or the tribe anyway, might be at risk. So we have to have more kids. We have to have more kids. Something like that. What do you think of that? It's interesting, right? So there's this bit here later on where Weinstein's talking about uh, human beings have the ability to think abstractly, which is something that animals don't seem to have. It's like, like I said earlier, like I know the sun is going to rise tomorrow. I have knowledge that the sun is going to rise tomorrow. It might not, but I, but I believe it does. Um, an animal I don't think has the ability to even consider that the sun might not rise tomorrow. I think they're, I think they're, Again, reacting to stimulus only. They're like little machines, um, you know, to, to some degree. And Weinstein says, we are different. You know, we can think abstractly. We can take ideas. We can separate those ideas from the context. This is something we talked about on the episode about Plato, where, um, you, you know, you can see um, the idea of beauty in things, like a song or a body or, a, you know, the sunset or something like that or, or you know, whatever. And you can abstract from these three different objects that are very, very different this idea of beauty. So I've abstracted this idea of beauty all by itself, free-floating beauty. Like I said, you can put it in a jar and label it beauty. I've got that now because I have these three different examples of beautiful things, and I can abstract from them what's common that I'm calling beautiful. Um, And that's not something animals can do. But we can do that, and we can speak. So we can communicate that to, to each other. And so we've got this interesting idea, uh, interesting ability to abstract things and to communicate those things to other people. And Weinstein says that what we're doing is we're sharing consciousness, and that's interesting um, because we're, we've been talking about the difference between consciousness and self-consciousness—you know, being aware and being aware that you're aware—but in this in this other idea that Weinstein's talking about. Not only are we aware that we're aware, but we're also aware that other people are aware, which is starting to get muddy and, and, and it's interesting. So the idea is like maybe something beyond self-conscious at this point because there's other self-conscious creatures that we recognize are out there, not just us, but others, um, and, we don't, and we don't have access to their subjective inner experience. But we can share with each other our own so I can tell you a story, I can tell you history, I can t- tell you a poem or ask you a riddle. You know, I can do those things that are happening in my head and I can somehow, I can give that to you and you can give it back to me. We can trade those ideas by speaking, communicating. And what that is, is something like a collective consciousness. And Weinstein brings this up and it's interesting. He actually says that individual consciousness seems like it's secondary that the collective consciousness is what's important. It's like that network of consciousness that that that's mine and yours and all the people we know and interact with. It's this network of consciousness that's that's important, that's meaningful, and uh, you know the individual consciousness that make it up are are secondary. Now I've got I've got issues with that, um, and I could and I could tear it apart, um, but Jordan didn't. He didn't do that exactly. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to just push on through because Jordan didn't object to it. Um, you know, I, I don't know how relevant it is to this particular discussion. So, so back to the podcast. All right, so Jordan Peterson says this at some point in the podcast. He says, people reflexively assume that consciousness is a consequence of the development of higher order brain systems. But you can lose an awful lot of cortical territory and still maintain consciousness. So now we're now we're going to go back here to this uh, question that we brought up earlier, which is that science doesn't know where consciousness comes from. Um, we don't know if, if anything about it. Although we believe that it's that it emerges somehow randomly from this uh, from this network of of neurons that we have in our brain. It, it, so there's something something biologically rooted there. Um, and again, not exactly proofed for that, but that's what most people believe. And Jordan makes this interesting point. He says, look, at, you know, as our brains, as creatures' brains get more and more sophisticated and they're developing, uh, that at some point you end up developing these structures in the brain that animals don't have that we have. And so you would expect us to be able to do, to do more with our brains. And maybe consciousness is one of those things that comes about. So that's the argument. And then Jordan says, "But you can, but you can lose an awful lot of cortical territory and still maintain consciousness." And he's referring here to some things he said in the past about uh, people that have had surgeries uh, to remove pieces of their brain or to separate, uh, like their uh, corpus callosum, which connects your your uh, two, two halves of your brain, and, and these specific examples where where people can actually have big parts of their brain removed and it doesn't see, seem to affect their ability to rem, to maintain their consciousness. They're still aware. I mean, you can think of somebody that's had a stroke. You can think of somebody that has a, that's had a lobotomy, let's say. There's still a level of consciousness there, even with really bad damage to the brain or even with big chunks removed. And interestingly, if you split or sever that corpus callosum, that material that connects the two halves of your brain, that you actually do experience Two separate consciousnesses And Jordan has mentioned that before That people who have had that that surgery uh, Will talk about having experiences Of you know, sort of like Having two people living in your mind You can imagine like a, like a schizophrenic or something And that's the kind of thing that they describe So it's really interesting And it's not so clear What he's pointing out It's not so clear that a, a sophisticated Brain is the answer um, Or a large brain or even a healthy and functioning brain, that all of those things can be reduced and damaged quite a lot and you still have consciousness. So there's something else happening here that's not very well explained. And uh, Jordan, he says, the fact that experience exists is almost indistinguishable to the fact that being exists. And this I cannot emphasize enough. This is another one of those fascinating questions that I cannot stop thinking about. It's the connection between what, um, what Philip Goff was talking about, you know, uh, making a distinction between consciousness and self-consciousness is having an inner experience. That's how we know something is conscious. If it has an inner experience, Um, that's what you and I uh, are. That's what we're experiencing right now. We're experiencing what it's like to be us, to hear to to hear these words and to be doing whatever it is we're doing right now that's an experience that we're having and what jordan's pointing out is that there, there is really difficult to make a distinction between the experiencing that you the experience that you're having right now and existence being it's like look the material world exists because i'm experiencing it if nobody was experiencing it would it be here? Would it exist? This is like if the tree falls in the forest and no one's there to hear it argument. But the argument here is to do with experience and existence. Is there a difference? Ask yourself. If you weren't experiencing anything, no sights, no smells, no sounds, no, no, no feelings, no concepts, no nothing, if you weren't experiencing anything, would you exist? Would, would existence exist? I mean, you could say maybe. It might. But you can't say yes and you can't say no. It's a very interesting thing that your inner experience, your subjective world, is all that you can know about the world around you. And so there's a connection between consciousness and reality that people People ignore. Because it's so obvious that these things are so closely correlated and connected. You can't separate them, actually. And it's kind of, if you can't separate them, it's kind of like they're one thing. Without experience, there is no being. Without being, there is no experience. Yeah, that's how I experience things. That's how it seems to me. So is, is experience, right? That's, that's consciousness that's doing the experience. Is that and being, the, the world around you, is that one thing? Well, Jordan seems to be asking that question. And every time I do a solo podcast, I, I pretty much say that explicitly. It's what I believe. So I think it's interesting that it comes up here, but it's also, it's also a very interesting question. So I'm going to ask you guys to consider that. Try to consider what, what it would be if, if you didn't have experience. And you know, what does that mean about existence, about the world, about, your, about yourself? If experience doesn't exist, there's a connection there. And it's, it's inseparable from the idea of reality. And it raises a question. It's like if the world was populated by conscious creatures, creatures that are aware, like plants and animals, but not, not you and I, not any self-conscious creatures. If the world is populated by only consciousness and nothing self-conscious, is that like... I mean, are, are we going to have the same question there about whether whether existence is real in that situation whether the tree has fallen and has really made a noise in that situation because there's nobody self-conscious there to experience it so I don't know exactly what that means you might want you might want to consider that question let me know if you let me know if you have any insights but I think that's also an interesting angle on that all right so we're wrapping up here um, Jordan says, he kind of proposes uh, that consciousness is ultimately responsible for selection. So, so they're talking about, like, biology and evolution. And he's like, you know, he, it's really consciousness that's in, con, that's in control of selection. It, it controls the spread of its genes. And the idea there is, like, your genes want to propagate. And that's what nature wants. It wants, it wants you to make a copy of yourself and continue. You know, that's what your cells do. That's what viruses do. That's what, you know, macro beings like animals and you and I do. We're just copying ourselves. That's what we're doing. But, but self-conscious creatures can kind of choose, right? They choose who they want to reproduce with, or they choose not to reproduce, or they choose to, you know, commit suicide or something. Like, we have choices, So even though it may seem like all your instincts and impulses are driving you to procreate, and they are, ultimately, a conscious creature has some agency. It has some ability to tell its genes, to tell nature, yay or nay. So, So he brings this up to Weinstein, who's a biologist, and Weinstein says, he says something like this. He's like, look, if a spider suddenly became aware that it was conscious... That it, that it could direct its body to control the propagation of its genes, that it had control over it. Um, and he basically says that the spiders that were, that were capable of doing that would be outcompeted competed by those that couldn't. So the idea is if I'm a spider and I've become self-aware and I know that I can control who I procreate with and, and I'm, I'm asking myself, why do I want to and what's the best way of doing it and you know, how do I get an edge Whatever it is that my consciousness is adding to the instincts, whatever it is that's preventing me from going out and fucking and having babies, that that is going to make the uh, baby fucking machine spiders way more um, prolific than me. They're going to have way more babies than me because I'm thinking too much about this. I'm not following my instincts. I'm stuck in my own head somehow. So Weinstein argues kind of the opposite to Jordan, and this is an example of their kind of like having an argument that's productive and not, you know, boiling down to arguing because they respect each other, which is really the whole point of Kyle and I doing this podcast is to try to show that that's possible. And that's what's happened here. And so the implication is interesting that that Weinstein's bringing up. He's like, look, if these spiders become self-aware, and they're spending uh, more time considering and thinking and deliberating while these other spiders are just going around, you know, doing their spider business and following their instincts, that they would eventually get out-competed and you wouldn't have self-conscious spiders anymore. And yet they're self-conscious people. So how did that happen? And the implication seems to be that, that if human beings take control of our gene propagation... Maybe we're going to be putting our ourselves at risk of being outcompeted by less conscious versions of ourselves. Maybe we're going to find ourselves in a situation like that. Maybe maybe we go in ext- extinct as a consequence. You know, and it's not a it's not a, a brush off kind of a kind of a fear because human beings are doing things beyond you know, our conscious control of, of, you know, who we're mating with or our choice to mate or whatever, we're doing things like CRISPR, like gene therapy. We're doing, th- we're really messing with our genes. We're not, you know, we're, we're going away above and beyond and we, and we're having the ability to, to be, to do that in more sophisticated levels all the time. Uh, so I think what Weinstein's saying is that, uh, not following your instincts because that's what nature is asking you to do is forcing you to do that. That's something that ha- could have bad consequences and human beings are doing that like gangbusters and we're, and we're, and we're just getting you know, more and more sophisticated at it. So that's interesting. I don't know what kind of risks that, that, you know, that, that may bring about, but it's interesting to consider. Um, one other, one other thing here. Um, when we were talking earlier about uh, the Garden of Eden and the mythological story of Adam and Eve eating the uh, fruit, and maybe that being a um, metaphor for a conscious consciousness becoming self-conscious, that that that, that story maybe is a metaphor. Um, there, there's some interesting language that's used in there. Where, um, and I, I brought this up before, but I'll I'll, I'll summarize where when, when Adam and Eve have eaten the uh, fruit of the tree of knowledge and they're getting kicked out of the garden, and God has found out that, that you know Adam and Eve have done this and uh, is kicking them, them out of the garden. God says that he's kicking them out of the garden to protect the tree of life. So I don't know if you guys know that or if you've listened to the episode where we talked about it, it's not that Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden because they disobeyed God, which is what I always learned in Sunday school. It's like, hey, God makes the rules, you broke the rules, now you're out of paradise. That's not what happened. Um, in the Bible, God specifically says that, that Adam and Eve have to be removed from the garden to protect the way of the tree of life, so that human beings wouldn't, wouldn't eat that fruit too, become immortal, and live forever. And that's exactly what the Bible says. They're afraid, God is afraid, that human beings will eat from the tree of life like they ate from the tree of knowledge. Like there's something beyond self-consciousness, something that we can achieve if we eat the fruit of the tree of life that makes us like God, knowing knowing good and evil. But the Bible says this, like like God, it, it says that man will become as one of us knowing good and evil. So knowing good and evil is sort of code in, in, the, in you know, the, the, the Eden story for becoming self-conscious. So man will become as one of us, self-conscious. Now he's referring to, God is referring to himself. God is referring to God when he says as one of us. So this is what I want to end on. This use, of, this use of the us, this use of the plural here is, is interesting, and it happens a lot in the Bible, especially in the first five books of the Bible, especially in the first book of the Bible, where God is referred to as us or we or many. God is more than one, and w- which is interesting because the Bible very clearly talks about God as being one. It's very important in, in, the, in the Old Testament. It's very important in the, in the biblical tradition that God is one, right? Thou shalt not have any other gods before me, that kind of business. So why here does, does the Bible say Adam and Eve are being kicked out of the garden? Because God is afraid that they will become as one of us, knowing good and evil. So this is, this is what I want to point out. I want to point out w- w- earlier when we were talking about consciousness and reality being sort of difficult to, to separate, experience and reality. Um, I would look at that as the, in the same way that it's difficult to separate consciousness from God. That those ideas, God and the world, God and reality, that those things are, are difficult to separate from one another to the point that they're kind of one thing. So if you can imagine, if you can go with me, that like like Philip Goff would say in the panpsychists, that if consciousness is the most fundamental thing, the most fundamental building block of all the subatomic particles and energy that create the rest of, material, of the material world, that consciousness is the thing that God is. It's also the thing that you and I believe ourselves to be, conscious or self-conscious creatures, and that we have become self-conscious in God's image, like the Bible says. And we do know that we have become, as one of us, knowing good and evil, we have become God. And it's not just you or me, that's God. It's consciousness. That's why God is not one thing in, in the language here. That's why God is saying one of us. Because what God is, is consciousness fractured into an infinite number of things, of, of living creatures. But the, pan, but the, but the panpsychist would say of, of matter and energy. That God is broken up and and fractured into all of these subatomic particles and forces that exist in the natural world that work to, to create material reality and you and me. So it's not it's not that consciousness is is an emergent property of the universe. It's that the universe is an emergent property of consciousness. Mike drop.